the Bible says that in, in the last days there'll be believers, uh, or at least professing believers, who want to have their ears tickled and want to have preached at them just what they like to hear, what's comfortable for them to hear. But this isn't that kind of congregation, is it? Okay. You want the truth? Okay, tug at it now. You want me to challenge you this morning? Okay. Then I will. Thanks for the permission. I would have done it anyways, but... We're talking about the, the tabernacle and the, the different kind of furniture in the tabernacle. We've read umpteen times Hebrews chapter 8 and chapter 9, which tells us that everything about that tabernacle in the Old Testament was a type of things to come. It, it foreshadows the reality of the relationship that we have with God in Christ Jesus. And so we looked at the Ark of the Covenant. We started with the Holy, the Holy of Holies and looked at the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat and discussed there how that really uh, points towards the, the, the Godhead, the, the center of, of God, the triune God, which is centered in His relationship with us on the person of Jesus Christ, the Mercy Seat, with the cherubim looking down on, on this Mercy Seat. And the goal of our relationship with God and the goal of God's relationship with us is to fellowship with the triune God, to actually participate in the ecstatic unconditional love and joy, which is God throughout eternity. That's the goal of creation. That's, that's what our relationship with God is all about. Outside of this Holy of Holies is the holy place where you find the, 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 um, the candlelights, the, the seven candles, and uh, the lampstand, and the table of showbread, and the altar of incense. The altar of incense showing that our relationship with God, if we're going to be in a right relationship with the triune God, our lives need to be characterized by praise and by prayer. And if we're going to have a relationship with God, the table of showbread shows us that we need to be consuming Jesus and bringing Him, in, him into our inner life. And the, the candle uh, sticks there show that if we're going to be related to God, we need the perfect light of God shining in the darkness of our heart at all times. Then we are looking at the outer court. And we, we begin by kind of reversing the flow here from the inside out. And now we're going from the outside in. And we talked uh, several weeks ago about the walls of this tabernacle. Um, and the features of being pure white, and how that represents the holiness of God, the sovereignty of God, the transcendence of God. It denotes the impenetrable mystery of God, which we cannot on our natural capacity, would not with our natural hearts ever discern. We cannot penetrate it. And there needs to be, therefore, in the heart of every believer, always an incredible awe and respect, and reverence, and adoration towards the all-holy God. Everything about God is shrouded in holiness. But that sovereignty, that transcendence we said last week, wasn't a transcendence of sheer might and brute power which controls all things and would maybe crush us. It's a sovereignty of love. Because the tabernacle isn't just surrounded by walls, there's a door. And the door is God's invitation, His whosoever will, to come inside the walls and participate, partake of the things of God. The door stands for Jesus Christ, who, who said of himself that he was the door. The way to get to the transcendent Father is through the incarnate Son, Jesus Christ. And just inside this door are two pieces of furniture. The first thing that stands right in front of the door is the altar, which denotes the work of Jesus Christ. Everything we are before God, everything we ever shall be before God, and every hope that we have to ever get to God hangs upon our trusting the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the door because Jesus Christ is the sacrifice. The second piece of furniture is what I want to talk about this morning, and, and I'm really just going to introduce the topic, and we'll continue it next week. But right beyond the, this altar, there was a, uh, uh, a washing basin, a laver of water. 
And the priests would come in, they'd have to make their sacrifices, but then they'd have to go on, and the second thing they had to do was to wash themselves, purify themselves, before they could go into the holy place. And that's the piece I want to talk on this morning. To get to it, I want to read something from the New Testament. It's always good to let Scripture interpret Scripture. So we have to ask the question, what is this washing basin? What does it represent? If everything about the tabernacle points towards something beyond itself, what does this point towards? And there's several options. I want to speak on the one that I think is most fundamental. And it comes out of Ephesians chapter 5. And I'll just read three verses here, starting in verse 25. Husbands, Paul says, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The husband is the head of the family, Paul says in verse 23. And now Paul tells you how a head should behave, how any kind of authority in the kingdom. It's Father's Day, so I'll throw in a little Father's Day point here. Uh, fathers, here's how you use the power you have. It's not a power. If, if we're to be imitators of God, which Paul says we're to be in verse 1, the power that you have isn't the power to control and to dominate and get your way. It's the power to give. Husbands, love your wives. Fathers, love your families as Christ loved the church. This is the paradigm of divine power. This is greatness. This is sovereignty. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. In order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. So as to present to himself the church in splendor, without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind. And just to make sure that his audience got the point, he repeats it. Yes. In order so that she may be holy and without, ble without blemish. So as to present to himself the church in splendor without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind. Yes, so that she may be holy without blemish. Let's pray here. Father, I just feel uh, in your heart here. I feel it on my heart. And I thank you for that. And I pray, Lord God, that we would, uh, Lord, that you'd use this message right here for your word to go forth and for your heart to be heard, for your people to be challenged and convicted and set free, Lord. So many bondages. So many needless struggles we continue in. So much miry clay we continue to wallow in when you've given us the means, the power to be freed from it. So Lord God, let it land, and that's your job, not mine. Lord, uh, take the words and make them your words and infuse them with your life and bear kingdom fruit, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. There's two things that Jesus did. Ephesians 5 tells us. On the one hand, he gave himself for the church when she was unworthy. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He gave himself. That's the sacrifice. That is the altar in the tabernacle. It's the first thing. He gave himself for the church. But there's a second thing that he did, and it's he that does it. He washes the bride. He acquires the bride by his death, but then he washes the bride. And cleanses her. And that's what the basin, the water basin, represents. And these are the two most fundamental things that characterize our relationship with God. 
they're described by two biblical terms, two very important biblical terms. And um, uh, they're used a lot in theology, and it's important that we understand them. The two terms are justification and sanctification. Justification, in the Greek it's dikaiosune, which means to be declared righteous. This is what God does to us through the altar. Um, when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, He declares you to be righteous. It's actually a, a legal term. He pardons you. He has mercy on you. He, he casts as far as the east is from the west your sins from you. You are pardoned. You are, the slate is wiped clean. The charges against you are dropped. That's justification, and it happens instantaneously whenever a person puts their trust in Jesus Christ. Sanctification denotes the process by which we manifest justification. Now follow me on this. It is the process of growing in Christ-likeness. It's the process of, of, of getting holy in our behavior, of having our thoughts and our feelings, our intentions, our dispositions, and our appetites brought into alignment with God. It's walking in right relationship with God. Justification is instantaneous. Sanctification occurs over a, a, a long period of time, but it occurs definitively nonetheless. It's the process by which a justified person who's been set free begins to manifest that freedom in their life. And they walk, and they talk, and they think, and they choose according to God's will. The two sides of our salvation. They're actually two sides of the same coin. They go inextricably together. And here's what's important. They are both God's grace. God's grace is sometimes understood as equivalent to God's mercy, but it's not. God's grace goes beyond that. It includes God's mercy, but it goes beyond that. Mercy is God just saying, I forgive you. Reprobate sinner, I drop the charges against you. That is God's grace. But God's grace is also a power that he infuses us with to live for him. God's grace involves both. Sometimes people mistakenly think that justification is what God does for us and sanctification is what we do for God. You get your salvation for free, but now out of your own self-will and self-effort, you try to live a holy life. You try to give up the bad habits. You try to purify your thoughts. But it's not like that. They're both part of God's grace. It is God's grace that declares us to be righteous, but it's also God's grace that empowers us to walk in righteousness. Amen? It's God's grace that lets us out of prison. But it's also God's grace that transforms our criminal behavior so that we don't need prison any longer. We don't deserve prison. You follow me on this? It's God's grace that allows us to escape the fires of hell, but it's also God's grace that equips us to be fit for heaven. It's God's grace that frees us from the judgment of God, but it's God's grace also that sanctifies us to make us compatible with the holiness of God. God's grace doesn't just declare us legally to be holy. God's grace infuses us with the power to walk in that holiness. Amen? God's grace covers both ends. God's grace grabs us out of the miry clay, the muck and the grime, and, and puts us on solid ground. But it's also God's grace that washes that mud off of us so we don't walk around the rest of our life with mud clods all over our face. It's God's grace that frees us from the consequence of sin, but it's also God's grace that frees us from the bondage of sin. 
It's God's grace that declares us that we are a bride, but it's also God's grace that washes that bride into a, a splendid, beautiful bride that's without spot or wrinkle that now Christ can present to himself. Both are part of the package of salvation. In the tabernacle, there's not just an altar. There's an altar and a washing basin. And both are part of God's plan of salvation, and we need to hold the two together. The problem is this. The problem is this. We live. There's always a, a, a carnal side to fallen humanity that just wants to do your own thing, and we live in a culture that just exalts that mentality. We live in a culture that is self-centered, self-absorbed, narcissistic, materialistic, self-centered. We live in a culture that conditions us to want to have it on our terms, not someone else's terms, not on God's terms. So there are people who want salvation, they want the justification, but they want it on their terms. They want to do their own thing, they want to have it their own way, and they're afraid of this transformation stuff. They're afraid of this sanctification stuff, because it might mean, it will certainly mean, an alteration in their lifestyle, in their thought processes, and that kind of disturbs them. That's not doing their thing. So the result is you have a lot of Christians who like the pardon, they like the mercy. Oh, see, we want as much as we can get for as little cost as possible. So we like the mercy, we like the justification, we like the, the pardon, we like to be set out of prison, but we want to keep on acting like criminals because that's what we choose, that's what we like, that's what we're used to. And so what you have to, in the church today is, in many quarters at least, a minimization of the importance of sanctification. It's seen as sort of being an optional thing. It's sort of seen as being an ornament to the Christian life. It's a, a sort of kind of thing. It's nice if you get around to it. We have far too little talk, overt straight talk, about things like sin and the gravity of sin and holiness and the importance of holiness. Still want the straight shot? Okay, come on. You guys, someone's got to say amen here. You got to tug at it. Okay, all right. That's what I'm looking for. Woo! The sad thing, I believe, I, I just got to say it straight, is that this carnal, self-centered, self-absorbed, have-it-my-way mentality, instead of confronting it, the church has, to a large degree, been co-opted by it. And in the name of being seeker-sensitive and trying not to offend anybody, some very, very crucial, essential, all-important theological, biblical concepts have dropped out of discussion, like sin, like holiness. What we need to see and what's important to maintain and put up front is that God not only wants a bride, He wants a bride that's washed, praise God. He wants a bride that looks compatible with Himself. When you forget about sanctification and the importance of walking in holiness, what happens is you end up with a very cheap grace. You end up with an idea. This is the greatest butchery of the, of the concept of grace I can imagine. Where grace sort of means it doesn't really matter all that much. You can do what you want. God says, yeah, you know, you're forgiven anyways. And there are tons of Christians who think that. Maybe they don't say it, but they think that. It's no big deal. That's no big deal. God forgives you anyways. He has to love us. You know, I put my trust in Jesus, and it's sort of like now i got a leverage on him, and hey, he's got no choice. He's got to love us. So, sin's not really a big deal, and holiness isn't that big of a deal. Sex outside of biblical guidelines. Well, it'd be better if you didn't, but, you know, hey, we're all human now, aren't we? Cheating and lying and stealing, a little bit here, a little bit there, no big deal. 
having rage in your heart, unforgiveness in your heart, backbiting, gossip, gluttony, coveting, jealousy. No big deal. I mean, this is just the way we are, and we're just reprobate, sinning worms, and we can't really help it. It's no big deal, but here's the thing. If Jesus died to set us free from that, it is a big deal. Amen? It's a very big deal. If he died on the cross for it, it's a big deal. If you understand who we're dealing with, the all-holy God, it is a big deal. Walking in right relationship with God is a big deal. He, he, he empowers us. He died for this. He sent his spirit to bring it about. It's a big deal. And any philosophy that would minimize that, it's a big deal to call it wrong and to say that it's just not lining up with God's word. It's important to keep this concept in mind, though. No one go out of here saying, oh, i got to live holy so that God will like me. i got to live holy so that, so that I'll be a child of God. The order is all important. Doing holy things doesn't get you right with God, but if you're right with God, you're going to be growing in holy things. You see the order there? Doing the right stuff doesn't make you a child of God, but if you're a child of God and your spirit's been regenerate, there are struggles. All of us have them. But they are struggles. You don't condone it. You don't wallow in it. You don't just accept it. You struggle through it, and God empowers you to do that. Overcoming things doesn't get you right with God, but if you're right with God, you're going to have the power to overcome things. Amen? Amen. That's the power of grace, and it's all God's grace. From beginning to end, it's God's grace. God's grace gets us out of prison. And God's grace transforms our criminal behavior so that we're people who no longer need prison. Now, how do we do that? How do we do that? It is not a matter of self-effort, as I said. It's not a matter of going out of here and say, whoa, 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 okay, now i got to just will, will, will. i got to choose, choose, choose. i got to try, try, try. i got to work, work, work. So that God will like me. There is choice involved. God never turns us into robots. You do choose it. Sanctification involves discipline. That's part of the Christian walk. It is something you have to will. It does involve sacrifice. You have a role to play in it, but it's not a matter of your cranking it out on your own self-effort. That's what the Bible calls flesh. And on your own, by your own willing, you can crank out some good-looking stuff, but you can't change your inner nature. On your own, you can't. Live the way God wants you to live. You can do a good job, maybe, of looking to appear on the outside that you're doing good stuff, but it won't come from the heart. We can't, on our own, produce kingdom fruit. That's why the Bible says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's our, that's our job. You work it out. You choose it. You walk in it. You're disciplined. But then Paul adds in Philippians chapter 2, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. It's the grace of God, the power of God, the Spirit of God that's working in you. To infuse you with that. And our most fundamental job in all of this is yielding. Paul always, when he's talking about right living, when he's talking about changing our attitudes, when he's talking about changing our, 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 our dispositions and our appetites, he says, yield. Yield to the Spirit of God. Yield to the new self that you are. Because God has created you a new creature in Christ Jesus. It's a matter of having the old self yield to that new self. You don't crank it out on your own. Let's go further. How do we do that? Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, at least he gives us one of the primary ways. He says that the Lord wants to wash his bride with the water of the word. The water of the word. The word of God. Odd metaphor. It's an odd metaphor. How do you get washed with the word? Now when Paul says word... The, the, his, the concept of word in the New Testament isn't just referring to the Bible, though it always refers primarily 
to the word which God has, has revealed. But the word can be the spoken word. The word of God goes forth. Wherever the truth of God is written, like in the Bible, that's the word of God. Wherever the truth of God is spoken and proclaimed, that is the word of God. But we are to be washed by the water of the word. Norm, you went to bed at 4 o'clock, or you got up at 4 in the morning. I, I went to bed about 4 in the morning because I was struggling with this. I was laboring with it, just trying to yank on the heart of God and, and, and just, God, how, how do you want me to land this thing? He gave me this picture, uh, very clear. I, I saw this uh, uh, Bible as like a, a shower faucet, and the bride of Christ is standing, standing under the shower. And it was beautiful. And we have all sorts of mud on us. All sorts of mud, and our hands are muddy. And when we try to, on our own, get the mud off, we just get muddier. We just smear it because we don't have any water of our own. But when you stand under the shower of the Word of God, that's when the washing comes and the cleansing comes. When you submit, when you yield, when you come underneath the Word of God, that's when the washing occurs. God's designed it that way. He gave Himself for the church, and He, He washes us. Through the power of the word. It's the cleansing that comes from putting yourself, your mind, your heart, everything that you're about, all that you own, thank you, Dave, under the anointing of the word. So the words of God flow into your lips, the words of God flow into your mind, and that is what evokes the washing, the cleansing out of the stuff in our life that ought not to be there. It tells us this. We need to understand this. And I come back to this every once in a while. That this book I'm holding in my hand, this, this Bible, is not like any other book that's on the planet. Amen? It is extraordinary to the nth degree. It is, it is, there's a lot of good literature out there. I love to read. I'm addicted to reading. I, and there's a lot of good stuff out there. You know, there's, there's good insights in a lot of books. There's good stories in a lot of books. There's good entertainment in a lot of books. I like books. I even read books from other religions and find nuggets of good insight there. And it's all wonderful and splendid stuff. But if you want to get washed, praise God, if you want to be transformed, if you want to be healed, if you want to have the power to walk in right relationship with God, if you want the junk in your life gone, there's only one book that's empowered to do it, and that's the Word of God. Amen? It's our shower. It's our water. And we need to stand under it. The Bible says in Isaiah 55 that when the word of God goes forth, it will accomplish all that God intends. When this word goes forward, when you read it, when you hear it, when you preach it, it goes forward and it does all that God wants. Even right now, if, if what I'm preaching is the word of God, and I'll tell you it is, there's washing going on right now, okay? I could be preaching out of Moby Dick and it might be interesting, but there wouldn't be any washing going on. But this is doing washing stuff. This is doing cleansing stuff. This is doing freedom stuff. This is doing healing stuff. And it's not because of my talking. It's because my talking is replicating the Word of God. When the Word of God goes forward, it accomplishes all that God wants. When you open it, it can't help but have an effect on your life. When you're reading it, it, it transforms you. 1 Timothy chapter 3 says that, that, that all Scripture is breathed by God. We use the word inspired. It really should be expired. The Bible, the Word of God, is the expiration of God. He breathes it out. Here's, what, here's my word. Now, where else have you heard things where, about stuff coming out of God's mouth? Well, in Genesis 1, it said he created the whole world by his word. The whole cosmos by his word. When God expires, things happen. And this is the, God, this is the, the breath of God, the Word of God, to us. Which means this, when you take the word of God, when you begin to ingest it, when you begin to, to put it in your mind, when you come under that shower, 
Lord, help this come out straight. The power that holds all things together, the power that created the universe is now landing on you. And there's no other power like it when it comes to being washed, setting, getting set free, getting healed, getting free from sin. It's the power that holds the universe together, and it's right here. He's given it to us, and the reason he's given it to us is because he doesn't want a muddy bride. He wants a bride that's been washed. The Word of God goes forward and accomplishes all that he wants. The Word of God is God-breathed. The Bible says in Hebrews 4, and we'll talk about this next week, the, the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing even to the bone and marrow, the soul and spirit. And we'll see next week that that is really just another way of saying washed. He carves off of us. This is a sharp word. He just... He carves off of us all the... Uh-oh. He carves off of us the microphone. I need to have a voice implant so that doesn't happen. He shaves off of us all the crust that doesn't belong there. The Word of God does it and nothing else does it. But here's the thing. And now I'm going to make a real profound point. A shower doesn't do you a bit of good unless you're in it. Isn't that profound? You can turn on the shower. My son used to do this. He hates showers. He turns it on, and somehow he had the idea that just by being around the shower, that must, you know, mom and dad won't know the difference, and uh, he'll get clean. You can have the shower on, and you can even believe with all of your heart that that shower has the power to make you clean, but if you're not standing under it, it's not going to do you a bit of good. There's that kind of funny thinking that, that we sometimes get involved in. Do you know that over half the people who buy exercise equipment end up not using it after the first year? I can testify to that. I got one of these tummy tucker power thingy bobbers, and I don't look like the guys on TV who advertise it. And the reason is because they use it and I don't. But somehow just having it underneath the bed makes me feel stronger or something. It's like an osmosis sort of thing. But you see, I, I can have that tummy tucker, and I even believe that that tummy tucker would work if I used it, but if I'm not using it, it's not going to do a bit of good. Now here's how the analogy applies. Statistics show us that 90% of all Americans have a Bible in their household. The same polls show us that about 3% read it on a daily basis. Less than 10% read it once a week. All that power just sitting there like a tummy tucker, doing nobody any good. Because if you're not in the shower, you're not getting cleansed by the shower. If you want an explanation for why there's so many professing Christians in America and so little power, you got it right there. Why it is that we have all this reality and we, we're given all these promises and all of this truth, but you don't see it very much, occasionally here and there, whatever, you don't see it very much, the explanation is to a large degree found right here. You look at any revival throughout church history and it always involved, even going back to the Old Testament, it always involved a reconsecration, a, a, a new devotion and fire for the Word of God, adhering to it, absorbing it, getting showered by it. The early church, why was the early church so powerful? Well, there's a number of reasons, but one central one is this. Acts chapter 2 tells us that they would meet together daily and attend themselves to the apostles' teaching. They put themselves under the power. They put themselves under the anointing. They took showers daily. Christians, we need to get a reconsecration for the Word of God, a renewed commitment. It's not enough to hear it once in a while, to get a tape once in a while, whatever. We need to become lovers of the Word of God. Even when you don't understand it, sometimes people get this idea, well, I can't understand it like Greg understands it, so I'll just listen to it when he preaches it. You know what? Don't do that. Um, there. <laughs> Even when you're not understanding it, just by struggling with it, 
The Word of God has an effect on you. It doesn't say when the Word of God goes forth and the people understand it, it will do all that God accomplishes. It will do whatever God accomplishes just by going forth, reading it, digesting it, putting it in your mind. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Praise God. You want more faith? It's in the Word of God. You want more power? It's through the Word of God. You want transformation? It's in the Word of God. You want freedom? It's in the Word of God. God gave us this, not just to sit on shelves and to look good and to hear a sermon from once a week. He gave it so that his bride is constantly taking a shower and wiping the muck that is on her. You know, here's the thing. We, we, get, we, we get slimed daily. We get slimed daily. There's muck, impurities that come on us daily. Some of these things, we're born in a fallen world, and some of them are there from birth. Uh, appetites and orientations. We're polluted from the word go. It's part of the fall. But we need to take a bath, and the bath can wash that off of us. And some of the muck and grime in our life, pegged out, why don't you come up and, and get ready here? Some of the muck and the grime of our life comes by the decisions that we've made and the habits that we've cultivated and the character that we've acquired. You say, well, it's, it, on your own, it feels like you can't do anything about it. It's just the way I am. And self-effort, you need to choose it, yes, but self-effort isn't going to do it. You need to be in the Word of God and let the power of the Word begin to shower you. And a lot of us have got slime that wasn't stuff we chose and maybe it wasn't stuff we're born with, but it came on us. Evil done to us. We got slimed. Maybe in childhood you got slimed and there's scars there and it causes you to walk out of right relationship with God. We are just continually from the media, from the world around us being bombarded with slime. I, I just, just have been so impressed this last week. Going to a movie, and it's not the fact that you see immorality in a movie that surprises you. If you expect that, maybe. But it's the of-courseness of it. It's a, boy meets girl, girl meets boy, boy likes girl, girl likes boy, they have sex. Of course. Good. It's not even questioned. There's, no, there's not even a bat of an eye. And see, those presuppositions slime you. The very best case scenario is that by resisting it, and you have to consciously resist it, you feel like you're a weirdo because you don't think it's of course. And it chips away, and it chips away, and it chips away, and we have got lies and pollution and bombardment coming on the bride of Christ continually. We need to be taking showers all the time. And the word is, the, the promise is that it will shower us. It will cleanse us. It will renew us. Our heart, I, I want to end just by this, a devotion here. And Dave, would you sing it? You guys sing it, and then Dave, you close in prayer, however God leads you. But sit here, and two things. Number one, ask yourself the question, are you being honest with yourself about sin in your life? Let God convict you. He does it not because he's a meanie, but because of his grace. He knows that you're better than this. He saved you to be better than this. You can be freed from it. And as he sings, let the Lord convict you about how you handle the word of God. You let the words of God be in your heart to push out the impurities and on your lips to push out the impurities.